question for you to chew on in the back of your mind if you get a little bored as we're talking about this is why does Jonah run? Why does Jonah run? And I don't mean just why does he disobey God, but I think most of us know that you could probably disobey God from the comfort of your own living room. You could just not go to Nineveh. You don't have to get in a boat and sail to the other side of the known world. Why does Jonah run from God? And I think it's an important question. We'll get back to that in a minute. Rest of verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Nobody's really sure where Tarshish is. You've probably heard it somewhere in Spain, and that's just a guess. That's as best a guess as anybody has. The idea that they're trying to convey is that Jonah went as far away from Nineveh as he could go. Nineveh was to the east. Tarshish was to the west. Say that ten times fast. Most scholars think it's just the last port. It's just the last port before you sail out into the Atlantic and there's just nothing else. And as far as they know, they're dropping off the edge of the world. It's the very end. It's as far away as you can get from God. It's like buying a ticket to Timbuktu. Just get me out of here. I want to get away. One quick note about the text. I highlighted the word down, and this is just one of those things that you're not going to see just reading it in the English. But God literally in that first verse, he tells Jonah to go up to Nineveh. But then Jonah goes down to Joppa, and then he goes down to the ship, literally the word down, and then he goes down inside the ship, we'll see in a little bit, and then he goes down into the sea, we'll see in a little bit, and then he goes down into the belly of the whale. It's wordplay that we're just not noticing because we don't read in Hebrew. It's very deliberate stuff, and it kind of shows you Jonah's journey to the bottom, and this kind of thing is all over the book. So verse 4, then Jonah, or excuse me, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, that's important to note, and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the ship to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down. Again, the same word, he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. Verse 6, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up. Again, same word that God used. Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. And the captain's like, what are you doing, man? Like, it's weird. The pagan sailors are encouraging Jonah to pray, and Jonah's just napping. Uh, Verse 7, the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots. That's their only option. They know this storm isn't just this normal run-of-the-mill Mediterranean storm. So who's responsible for this? The lots fell to Jonah, verse 8. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? It's a little bit of an interrogation going on. Like, we need to know some background here because there's a terrible storm clearly caused by some deity and it's somebody's fault on this ship and we've got to figure it out. So what kind of work do you do? Maybe it's that. Where do you come from? Where's your country? What, from what people are you? Verse 9, he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. So that when he was filling out his customs declaration, purpose for travel, running from God. That's what he had put on there. Now, verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? This is clearly something, there's something that has to be done. 
Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault this great storm has come upon you. Now, it's not entirely clear why Jonah thought the, the solution was to throw him overboard. I still think you could have probably, well, you could turn the ship around and go back to port and I'll go on my, my way. But I, I still kind of, in my own mind, think Jonah's still trying to get out of what God was asking him to do. I still think he's trying to run from God to the point of, eh, just throw me overboard. Instead, this is cool. This is the, the sailors playing against the stereotypes. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord. This is, they're crying out to the word, literally, Yahweh. That's the word in the text. Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. Of course, Jonah wasn't innocent, but... These guys are still behaving in a really positive way, out of character for the norm. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Verse 15, then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. This next verse is cool. Check this out, 16. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Again, just notice it's the pagan soldiers who try to do the right thing, and it's Jonah, the prophet of God, who's doing the wrong thing. You can see that God has something going on in this book. He's trying to do something different in this book. The guy that we're supposed to identify with, the guy whose life and faith we're supposed to emulate, is not a guy worth following. But these pagan soldiers, hmm, they do the right thing, and you're going to see that played out in a number of different places. One little interesting side note, this is just total uh, nerdiness, but if you guys remember the story of Mark chapter 4 where Jesus calmed the storm. Remember there was this raging storm. Jesus was sleeping. The sailors, the apostles were afraid during the storm and then Jesus calmed the storm and what does the Bible say that they were after the storm was calmed? They were greatly afraid. Same, same sequence of events and there's, there's a number of instances where it seems like Jesus even drew, potentially drew on the book of Jonah uh, for some things that he was doing. All right, so with the exception of an unfortunate chapter break and they're just all over the place, and it's a mess. We, we, the last thing we see in this scene is Jonah getting chucked overboard, and we don't know what happens next. I looked at a number of children's books this week, and I'll have to show you their covers uh, here in a couple weeks, but on the back of them, like, you know how you read the back of the book to get an idea of whether or not you should buy this book and read it? So on the back of the book, it said, will Jonah ever be rescued from the belly of the whale? You know, and you're like, I, I guess you could just read the next verse and find out what happens, but that's the tension they're trying to build. What happens next? To be continued. And it almost feels like the, the story builds itself that way. You get to the end of chapter one, and if this was like, you know, if this was being shared shared orally versus just being written, you're almost like, you can imagine the audience is like, and Jonah gets thrown overboard. Well, what happens? What happens next? When I read my kids' uh, books at night, I always try to end on a cliffhanger because you, you want them to, to want more, and you almost get that impression that's going on here in this story. Like, now what happens to Jonah? He gets thrown overboard, and so he dies, right? That's the punishment for disobeying God. What happens? And we'll talk about this next week, but I, wanna, I want you to see this, this story for, for what it is. It's popular to use this first chapter of, of uh, Jonah to talk about how you can't run from God. You can't run from God. If you try to run from what God wants you to do, God will send a storm and he'll bring you back or he'll send a fish. I understand what they're saying, but that has not ever been my experience. The times I've disobeyed God, there wasn't a supernatural storm or a giant fish coming to bring me back. In fact, isn't it the story of humanity that you can run from God? 
Isn't that kind of the whole thing? That God doesn't force you to do what he wants? There's something different going on in this story. And so I think it's oversimplifying it to say, well, see, you've got to obey, because if you don't obey, storms are coming. I think that's oversimplifying what the author is trying to do with this story. But I think that there's an important point to make, and Jonah is the perfect guy to make this point. God has a bigger thing going on here. So let's go back to that question that we asked. Why does Jonah run? You could literally disobey God and sit in your living room and watch Netflix. Why does he run? You can disobey from the comfort of your own front porch with a glass of lemonade. Why does he run? This is a really important question to understand the point that's being made here. He could just not go to Nineveh. Disobedience, in fact, most of us probably understand this, disobedience doesn't have to take much effort at all. It's pretty easy sometimes, actually. In fact, it's the easiest route sometimes. So why does Jonah run? My kids will pull a Jonah sometimes. Um, I'm sure they got this from me because I'm sure I did it when I was a kid, but you'd have to ask my mom. Um, sometimes kids will get a vibe in the air. They'll, they'll see a look on their parents' face that says, uh-oh, something's about to happen. And usually it's something like mom and dad are going to ask us to clean our rooms or to do chores or to do something we don't want to do. They can sense it. It's in the air. There's just something going on. And my kids, I'm not pointing any fingers or naming any names, will sometimes pull a disappearing act when they can tell something's about to come. They're gone. And it's the old kind of like, well, you can't obey if you can't command me to do anything, right? There's just like, I'm out. Like, how are you going to tell somebody to do something if they're not even in the room? And so you can almost see, and the reason I know that they're doing this is because they move faster than they have ever moved in their lives under these circumstances. Normal circumstances, you're like, hey, can you come clean this up? And it's just like this slow, like sloth-like movement to whatever, put shoes away or whatever. But when they're trying to get out of doing something that they know that you're about to ask them, they're just like, man, these guys, Olympic qualifiers. They're just gone. They're leaving because not, not simply that they don't want to, to, uh, to, to obey, but that's part of it. But the idea is, is like, I don't want to do, I don't agree with what you're asking me to do. I'm out of here so I can't even be asked to do it. And this is an important distinction with, with Jonah. Jonah doesn't run simply because he doesn't want to obey God. He runs because he doesn't agree with God. We're going to get into something really crucial for the church. And this is particularly true for those of us that have grown up around Christianity or around this idea that we're spo- there's this standard of behavior to which we adhere to. And so this is really important for us because we often want to uh, condition our obedience on our agreement, whether it's our parents or whether it's God. And you've seen this as parents. You've seen this when you say, hey, kids, go do this thing. And they say, why? There's two different types of whys. One of them is I genuinely want to understand what you're asking for me so I can do an excellent job. The other one is I want to know if I agree with what you're asking me to do. So whether or not I'm going to argue for an hour about it. Those are the two different kinds of whys that kids often get. Now, he doesn't run because he doesn't want to obey God, although that's true. It's not simply that. He runs because he doesn't agree with God. So, spoiler alert, I know not all of you have read the end of the book of Jonah, but Jonah talks about this later on in the book. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 1. Again, unfortunate um, chapter break. Look at this. When God saw what they did, and this is Nineveh repenting in response to Jonah's message. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But to Jonah, listen to this, but to Jonah, this seemed very 
wrong. I, can t- I totally relate to Jonah here, by the way, just by the way. This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Who do you suppose he became angry at? God. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I tried to avoid you forgiving these people because they don't deserve your mercy, which is kind of the point of mercy. Nobody deserves it. That's the whole thing. This seemed very wrong. Remember, Jonah has cause to hate Assyria. So does everybody in Israel. He doesn't believe they deserve, they, they deserve God's justice, not his mercy. But he doesn't obey because he doesn't agree. And I think, church, this is a more common problem than we want to admit for ourselves, that we do not obey because we don't agree. I want you to think of obedience as a little bit of a Venn diagram. I've got an image up here, and I want you to imagine obedience as, you know, you've got me over here, right? And this is me, my response, so to speak. And then the, uh, the pink over there is God's will or God's command. And I think there's often areas where there's quite a bit of overlap. Go to the next slide, if you would. There's often areas where, where what, what, what God is asking me to do is very similar to what I'm going to do anyway. And some of this has to do because you were raised in, in a relatively Christian culture. Whether or not your family was Christian, you were raised in an environment in our society that still kind of has the vestiges of, uh, of a, a, uh, a Christian history or a religious history. Now, this is not always true, and this is not always true across the board, but there are things, there are things you're not really obeying God, you just happen to be walking in the same direction as God. And you're not really opposed to doing what God is expecting you to do because it doesn't really violate what you wanted to do anyway. That is not obedience. And we have to be very careful about confusing our agreement with God with our obedience to God. And that little narrow strip right there, that represents where areas in our life where maybe we don't agree with God, what God is asking us to do or to think or to believe. And that is where the real rub in our relationship with God is. How do we react in those moments? Because most of us are fine, you know, like, I don't want to go murder people. I don't want to go commit bank robberies. I don't want to do that. So for me to obey God in those areas, it is no sweat. But when God starts to mess with areas that I don't want him to mess with, now we find out whether or not I'm really truly being obedient or whether I just happen to be walking in the same direction as him anyway. Because a lot of us, that's all that our relationship with God is, is we just haven't found too many areas with which we disagree with God. We're not really in conflict. We're raised in a Christian home. We're raised in a Judeo-Christian culture. And there's just not a lot that we have to worry about because we're just doing a lot of the things that we feel like God's expecting of us anyway. This isn't to say we get confused in those areas. Don't misunderstand. If you want a little uh, fun on a Friday night, try to, you can really see this, truly see this, and probably true for a lot of us, but it's, you can probably call to mind some people for whom it's even more true. Try to distinguish with a person, have a conversation with a person, and distinguish between their politics and their religion a little bit. And find those places, somebody who really cares about politics and really cares about a political platform. And then find those areas where their politics and where their faith maybe aren't quite in alignment. And you'll begin to find these areas that they're not quite ready to walk with God. They're not quite ready to walk in God's will. It's kind of tough to watch especially when they start bending Scripture to fit a particular political platform. It's kind of ugly, actually. Because that's not what God has called us to do. To not, we're not, our, our goal is not to be in alignment with a political party. Our goal is to be in alignment with God. 
Liam will sometimes play on our phones. Uh, we haven't got him a phone. We're not those parents yet. And uh, he always, he downloads these games and he'll play. And what happens is, is we'll miss calls and texts while he's got the phone screen open. And uh, he'll, you know, you can just swipe right up and get rid of the text or you can just hit the red button and ignore the call. And so we've had this conversation with him. We're like, hey, buddy, got to let us know if we're getting calls and texts and stuff like that because sometimes there's important things that we need to know about. Now, truth of the matter is 99.9% of the, the texts are not important and they're fine. But even this cool little watch won't ping if someone's got the phone open and using it. Well, this has been a while back, and I, I, I realized I was expecting an important phone call from somebody, and I thought, man, it's so weird. I really expected it to come, and, you know, it's very strange. They're usually, you know, really, you know, right, uh, uh, responsible and getting back to me. And I went and found my phone, and sure enough, there was a little guy playing on it. And, uh, and I was like, hey, you know, buddy, can I see the phone? And sure enough, there's like 20 missed calls. And I'm like, oh, no, you know. And I was like, hey, buddy, remember, you know, I'm sure I said it this patiently, right? Hey, buddy, remember, uh, you know, you're supposed to let us know if there's important things that we're missing? And Liam's like, none of those were important. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, I understand from your point of view, that may not be true, but from my point of view. I think what we're doing when we try to decide which commands of God we'll obey and which commands we won't, what we're saying is, God, we are actually on top of the flow chart of authority here. All this comes through me, and I will decide which things I need to obey and which things I can ignore and just swipe up on. I will decide that. And God's saying, you're not good at deciding that. Humanity has proved themselves to be terrible judges about what sorts of moral requirements are important and what aren't over and over again. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. It is the original problem that we struggled to know which moral expectations were important and which weren't. And we decided for ourselves and we caused all these problems. And it's a repeated process. We all do it. We all do it over and over and over again because we have decided, is it really that bad? Did God really say don't eat of that tree? Does that verse really mean that? Is that can't be right because that doesn't agree with what I believe. We are treading on dangerous ground when we make our agreement a condition of our obedience. Amen. We're treading on dangerous ground when we make our agreement a condition of our obedience. The problem is, is we're saying that we are in charge. We are the masters of our own fate. We are the captains of our own ship. That's not real obedience. And, and really, and let me, let me be careful here, because what God is looking for, and I, I'm going to be misunderstood unless I'm cautious, what God is truly looking for is not obedience. What? Wait, what? What have you just been talking about? God is not truly looking for obedience. He's looking for surrender. And the obedience is a reflection of that surrender. Does God want us to be obedient? Yes. <laughs> the kids are going to leave here and say, well, Patrick said, don't be obedient. No. But he's, he's looking for surrender. Parents, isn't that what you're looking for sometimes in those situations with your children? You're looking that there's some defiance and you're looking for surrender. We have defiance in our hearts and God is looking for our surrender. It's not real obedience to say, God, I'll obey as long as I'm already going in that direction, as long as it's not inconvenient to me. This narrow strip between this next slide, if you would, that narrow strip between what we already want to do and what God is asking us to do is where the real battle is fought. So let me ask you two questions as we wrap up. Number one, what areas of your life are not truly surrendered to God? What areas of your life are closed off from God? 
And not only are you not obeying, but you're not surrendering. And then additionally, or a corollary to that, is where are you still running from God? Where are you still saying, God, someday maybe I'll deal with that, but not right now. Not right now. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to captain my own ship. I'm going to be my own master. I'm going to tell myself what I think is right and what I think is wrong. For me, that packs a punch. And I think Jonah will do this each step of the way. We'll look at these, these, these scenarios and we'll think like, oh man, there is a lot more than just some flannel graph veggie tales children's story there. There's some stuff for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. So join us. We're going to be uh, exploring next week what happens when Jonah gets thrown overboard. Pretty interesting uh, little story. But before we dismiss, we're going to say a word of prayer and then we're going to dismiss everybody to walk uh, down the aisle into the fellowship hall and we're going to participate uh, and watch someone accept Christ in baptism uh, this morning. That'll be awesome. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to uh, be here today. And we're grateful for the book of Jonah, God. And we're, we're grateful that you gave us this, this mirror with which to reflect our own uh, uh, defiance and our own lack of obedience, the areas of our lives that we have just guarded and we've held off from you. So Lord, I pray that we would look at this and we would be truly disturbed about the parts of our lives that we haven't surrendered to you. God, I pray for your spirit to lovingly convict us of those areas that, that you need to operate on and those areas of our hardness of our hearts that need to, be, to, to need to be softened so that we can fully surrender our hearts and our lives to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.